Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to Tuesday, the Bill Kelly Show podcast for Tuesday, July 28th. I'm in for Bill all week. We're going to chat with Liz Stewart, who's the president of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association. They wrote a letter yesterday to the province and, well, expressed some concerns. Some pretty valid concerns as well. So we'll talk to Liz about that. We all want to make sure this gets done right before our kids potentially go back to school in September. As well, COVID-19 is becoming more prominent with people 39 and under. But why is that the case? They're not all at parties. They're not all gathering in parks and not practicing social distancing. Some of them have gone back to work. Why some of the shaming doesn't seem quite right to me. We'll talk to Dr. Isaac Bogach. Who else better to explain where we're at with COVID-19 and his positive reaction to a lot of the third-stage vaccine trials happening right now, including the Moderna one in the States. That's going to help out a fair bit, get us moving forward. Alan Cross will join us to talk about Canadian concert venues being at risk as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and much, much more. It's the Bill Kelly podcast. You're listening to it and I hope you enjoy it. Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. We had a conversation with our kids last night. My kids are 14 and 12. One's about to enter high school. One's about to enter grade seven. And we're starting to talk about as we shift to August and what we want to accomplish in the summer. We don't really have these family meetings that often, but then they start asking questions about school. And I admit um, you get stuck for a loss for words. March and April obviously hit all of us, all of our lives, um, you know, like a cannonball really did. And the online learning, uh, what teachers had to deal with. And I get that anxiety is it's at an all time high for parents, uh, for teachers. And we forget sometimes my parents were both teachers. My mom taught JK and SK and my dad was a history economics teacher in high school. So they ran the gamut in, in terms of age. Yesterday, um, the president of the OECTA sent a letter to Stephen Lecce and she's kind enough to join us now to talk about some of the contents and, and whether she hopes there's movement this week in getting some answers. Liz Stewart uh, is our guest on the Bill Kelly Show. Liz, it's Greg Brady. Thank you very much for making the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, of course. Um, what was the, the motivation, the, the real genesis for the letter is simply time's running out, isn't it? There have been, you know, even even when online learning ended in June, we've been looking at five, six weeks. And I, I it probably would have been premature. And I think the government would have been criticized for putting a, uh, you know, a solid rock solid plan together in early July because we'd say there's eight more weeks and, and the disease, the numbers, all of it could shift. But we are going to get down to crunch time. We are hearing more from teachers and parents that have considerable concerns about September, aren't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the genesis for the letter was, I mean, quite frankly, just this overwhelming sense of frustration that we have. Because, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, plans would need to be flexible. But we actually wanted to start having conversations back in March. Because regardless of when schools reopened, we knew they were going to reopen. So we've been saying for a long time, let's start thinking about it. Let's start, let's start planning for all outcomes. Let's really have those conversations. And, you know, it, it fell on deaf ears. And you're absolutely right. Now we're in that, that home stretch and we still don't have solid plans. Boards mm-hmm. have been told to go make their own plans without any directional guidance from the provincial from the provincial government without any indication about what funding may flow 
to assist them with it, which puts them in an untenable situation. Well, as well, I, I would I would bet you that teachers want a lot more. Look, there was not much notice. There were two weeks off around the period of March break for for most teachers, and then it was like, hey, teach online. And now there is time. If that's the the methodology, even if it's partial, even if it's a hybrid system, Liz, they they need a lot more guidance because I think you'd concur. We were all going in a little bit blind in in late March and early April. Uh, teachers had to like my two kids. Their their daily experience was vastly different, and they had two teachers at the same school. To put it bluntly, yeah, yeah, and and that you know that you're absolutely right. People want as much certainty as they can be given, and I think everybody. If there's one thing we've all learned throughout this pandemic, it's that we all need to be a little flexible, right? That you know we we really can't guarantee what tomorrow is going to bring we we can hope for the best and we can certainly work towards the best outcome but you know we we do have to be flexible and i think we all understand that but absolutely you want to have some certainty we want to understand you know for example in the midst of all this the government decided to release its new math curriculum and say we're going to roll that out in september i don't think they could have picked a worse time to do that when really and truly we should be focused on how do we make sure students and education workers can be in schools and be safe and how do we um, assist with all of those anxieties that have been building up and how do we prepare our students to learn again and how do we make the adults in the school feel comfortable and safe in the environment as well. I, I think you're right about the math. Would you concur that, yeah, the, the timing isn't great? As you said, we all have to learn to be flexible, but there has been a demand among parents. There's been a demand among some teachers to teach math oh, yeah. a little bit differently. You, you're just saying, could it be next summer when when hopefully we're through the, you know, through the darkness of the, the dark part of the tunnel of this, right? Yeah, or could we have some extra lead time? Mm-hmm. You know, could it not be, don't announce in June that you want to roll this out in September and implement in September. Absolutely release it in June, but allow teachers to become comfortable, A, just being back in the workplace and feeling safe there, and then start to get familiar with new curriculum. Because right Mm -hmm. now, they're focused on how do I make sure the students I serve every day are safe? And how do I make sure they feel safe in that environment? Because that's going to be a huge piece in this puzzle and it really needs to be our number one priority making sure everybody is safe in that environment so that then we can start to build that those those good learning moments and expand it liz stewart is our guest uh she's the president of the ontario english catholic teachers association an important question i think you've got forty-five thousand members are you seeing uh conversations happen among among your teachers that, that almost go along demographic lines. Do you feel, uh, you know, is it plain and simple that younger teachers are more confident about going back to the classroom and teachers more in that my parents taught until they were in their early 60s. Teachers, I wouldn't want them in this environment, in a classroom environment, this fall if they were 58, 59, 60. Are you finding older teachers have a lot more concern about personal protection, about making sure there's, there's proper distancing? Uh, does it go along demographic lines from what you see? No, not from what we're hearing. It's all teachers. We're hearing it loud and clear from all of our members that they're really concerned about what's going to happen in September and how they and their families are going to be kept safe and how the students they serve are going to be kept safe.
So, you know, mm. it, it really does run the gamut because, you know, even our younger teachers, they have, they may have, you know, older parents at home. They may have their own young children at home. They may have, you know, relatives uh, who are, um, you know, in a vulnerable group. Right. So all of those, you know, teachers are people too, and they have mm. their own families and they, you know, have their own communities that they interact with. And so, you know, that concern is everybody. Understandable. So I, I, it's all across the demographic. It really mm. doesn't, we haven't seen a breakdown in terms of age of teacher. Mm. That's interesting. I hope we can. Uh, I, I appreciate that you put that out yesterday, and, and you've done a lot of media interviews, and, and you saved time for us. So thank you for doing this, and I hope we can uh, do this again before the fall because these are really, really important conversations. Parents need as much information and opinion, uh, you know, as possible. Thank you very much for the time. No problem, and thank you very much. You got it, Liz Stewart, uh, Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association president. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are we unfairly shaming people under 40? That age group got called out last week. Okay, the Ontario Ministry of Health said there's several hotspots. There were, say, like Friday's the example I'm using, 195 infections and most 66%, 128 of the 195 of the new infections were people 39 and younger. Okay, so there's a trend. Doug Ford called it disturbing. Teresa Tam, the uh, chief medical officer of health for our country, says there's COVID fatigue among people under 40. Okay? That uh, they don't think that the people under 40 are taking precautions enough. Okay? And I never... Look, there's one thing about the online factor, right, in social media, is I think there's too much shaming. I think, you know, a celebrity doesn't leave a, a good tip. Next thing you know, that's on Twitter, and that person is a quote-unquote cheapskate. We wouldn't have seen that 20 years ago. Some of the stuff's important, like things that are, I don't know, crimes, okay? Crimes of assault, crimes of workplace scenarios that are absolutely inappropriate, be they bullying, be they, uh, you know, a, a terrible atmosphere to work in. You can document those. That's fine, because obviously if you're wrong, you might get sued, okay? You can't just libel and slander anybody you feel like at any time. Though Twitter gets there, okay? Twitter comes awfully close to that at different points in time. But here's my thought on people 40 or younger. And again, I'm asking if you think people under 40 are not taking COVID-19 seriously enough. 905-645-3221. Here's the struggle I find before I tell you about this bar story and we take some of your phone calls. Many of them have been also forced to go back to work. And many people over 60 have not. Okay, think about that. Where are the jobs that are how many bartenders are you walking into or or waitresses or waiters on the patio servers, as we call them? I used to serve. Okay, and it's a weird thing when I, you know, you'll see a waiter or a server, uh, waiter, waitress, server. And I'll say, yeah, I used to do that. And then I catch myself sometimes before I tell them a story because I don't want them to think that I've moved on from that. Okay. Because what I do isn't all that special, talking on the radio or being a broadcaster, but I also so appreciate it. And I did long before, okay? I've never had an incident where I've treated somebody who's brought my food out badly, and yet I see, I know it happens. It happened to me. Um, there's just people who handle those environments and situations well and people who don't. But what I don't enjoy right now is I think we're casting aspersions 
on people under 40 not taking them seriously enough when we were told in March and April, hey, don't go after the old people. They just want to keep living their lives the way they're living. Yeah, here's the struggle with that. Here's the struggle with that for people in February who are still going on cruises, still going to casinos, still going to buffet dinners, okay? And a lot of them want to get out and play golf, and that's fine. You can play golf. That seems to be one of the safest activities going. But if you get COVID, it's not as safe for you, okay? You should be able to go out and take more chances if you're 36 than if you're 66, okay? I'm going to go play golf later today. I've rediscovered my love of the sport. I hated it for about seven years. That's probably strong language. But I play tennis with a bunch of friends in the morning sometimes. But I'm in my mid-40s. Do I want my father or an older uncle who's in his 60s or 70s doing that? I do not. I wouldn't let them. Okay? So you see the distinction right there. So if you're painting the picture of people under 40 Partying down, heading to bars. They're all at 200-plus populated parties in Brampton all at the same time. All of them are breathing all of e- all over each other. Yeah, that's an isolated incident. But I know a lot of people under 40, okay, still. And I'm seeing responsible behavior. And I think it varies from household to household. And there are people that probably differ in their own households about what they should do. I see university students taking this incredibly seriously. The reason we're having higher COVID numbers among people 39 and younger, they're the ones working in retail. They're the ones working mostly at grocery stores. You are seeing them when you go to the LCBO. You're seeing them when you need a new hat or you got to go buy tennis balls or golf balls at SportCheck. There's not a 58-year-old behind the counter at SportCheck. More often than not, again, don't get offended by this. These are plain and simple demographics. And when we think about the scenario of who is getting, who is dying from COVID, guess what? Older people are. And again, I'm panicked about school. I'm panicked about uh, what we do when the weather gets bad. Again, lovely night. I'm watching my kid. I, I finished uh, nine holes of golf. I go watch my kid uh, play soccer with 13 of his, of his friends on his team. Are they going to be able to do that indoors in late October, early November? I don't think so. So I'm, I'm in the moment. I'm enjoying it while I can. But 70% of the people that have died from COVID-19 in our province of Ontario, 15 million people here in this province, okay? 70% of the people who've died are over 80. 17.3% are 70 to 80. So we've got 87.3% already of people over 70 that are dying, okay? 8.1 or 60 or over. So if you're under 60, and you've died from COVID, you're 4.6% of Ontario's COVID deaths. And you're not listening to me anyway right now because this terrible tragedy took your life. But the point is 95.4% are over 60. These are the vulnerable people we have to protect. Why do we have rules for everybody? Why is there rule for a COVID rule for a 19-year-old that we wouldn't want to toughen and, and make stricter for a 75-year-old? Okay. Like, my parents are home, sitting right, uh, you know, I know exactly where they're sitting right now. I know exactly what they're doing. They're not itching to get out. But I know some of you are. And some of you have mothers and fathers that are. And loneliness sucks. Maybe they're alone. Maybe they're widowed. Maybe their partner doesn't respond to them quite the way they used to. And they're, they're, they're eager to socialize. Of course they are. You get set for retirement. You work your whole life. And this is part of your retirement. 
dealing with COVID-19 for 12 or 18 months. But there's no other choices. You're going to have to keep dealing with it. We make drivers retest at 80. Okay? We don't do it at 60 or 65. I think 80 is too old to retest. I think we should be retesting at 65, 66. What's wrong with a test every four years? You're driving until you're 78, 79, and no one's looking at you. Okay? So we get panicked about graduated driving, 16-year-olds cause all these crashes. Do you think the average 18-year-old driver is, do you trust the average 18-year-old driver more than a 78-year-old driver? I do. And we're doing graduated driving for our high school students and not people in their 70s. Where are we on, is it discriminatory for COVID-19 to say the rules should be a little bit different for a 20-year-old than it should be a 75-year-old? Doesn't that make sense? Aren't we trying to protect the most vulnerable? So let's put rules in place that allow that to happen. How about bigger gatherings for younger people, but you can't go if you're older? Okay? Produce your ID <laughs> when you go to a party. Like, nobody wants to put older people in these vulnerable positions. But the reason we're having these 40 and under COVID cases spike is because they're working again. And they're in vulnerable positions again. And people are coming into stores to see them and buy things and talk with them and buy cars. How many 68-year-old car salesmen are there? Not very many. They've retired. Okay? Take this Hamilton bar. I got about a minute here, uh, but this Hamilton bar on the mountain near Albion Falls. Okay? Cause and effect kitchen and bar. Had an alleged infected patron there. Their response, well, we've had a professional company sanitize our restaurant with an electrostatic disinfectant. It doesn't matter. They probably didn't get it from a surface. They probably got it from close interaction with no damn masks. How hard is any of this? Harder than it's supposed to be, if you ask me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very pleased to bring in uh, an infectious disease specialist, of course, at the University of Toronto, Dr. Isaac Bogach. And, and Dr. Bogach, I appreciate the time, first of all. Always enjoy our conversations. I saw you on with uh, Far Nasser last night on Global News, and you were mentioning the positive news about um, vaccines. And I know vaccines maybe for some come in one ear and out the other because there's so much news about it. But this Moderna one in the U.S., um, it, the number leaped off the page to me that they're looking at it with 30,000 people. Uh, this is the first of its kind um, with, uh, with Moderna involved with the NIH. Yeah, this is fantastic stuff. It really just shows us that the pace of research is uh, is fantastic, and that the resources being poured into it is truly infinite. I, I think the world has recognized that the, a vaccine is our ticket out of the mess that we're in, and uh, people are ponying up money. So this trial that's underway now in the United States uh, is basically the most advanced phase of a human clinical trial you can get. It's called a phase three clinical trial. And, and essentially, it, it answers the big question, does it work? You know, the trials that come before sort of address the, is it safe? What dose mm -hmm. should we use? Is your immune system doing the right thing? But this trial where they enroll 30,000 people is going to answer the question, hey, if we give this vaccine out, is it actually going to protect people from the from the infection? So very exciting stuff to see this. And just to point out, not to belabor the point, but just to point out, there are other phase three clinical trials that are ongoing. I think there's about four or five of them now. And we're going to have the results of the other big clinical trial on the Oxford vaccine. It's being done in the U.K., uh, probably in late 
August or maybe early September. I thought we'd get it in July, but it looks like it's late August or early September. So, I mean, this is the kind of area where you stay tuned because this the the pace of research is going really fast. And we're going to get some exciting exciting news soon. It is really good news, and and yeah, the Moderna one looks like Dr. Fauci uh, said on Good Morning America this morning that they'd be looking at October um, if uh, if they can move quickly. And obviously, it's the U.S., so we all. You know, we all hold our breath and make sure that they can do this, but they've got 89 different sites. There's almost, uh, you know, a billion dollars in government funding that's backing this particular vaccine, and and uh, it's a race. And as you note, there are uh, the WHO notes that there's 25 different inoculations in human trials and 160 vaccines total in development. So it's a real race. Yeah, it is. And you know what? The, the, the great thing here is it's not a matter of who crosses the finish line first. It's a matter of who crosses the finish line. Um, because we know that of those 160-some-odd vaccines, most of them aren't going to make it. Most of them mm-hmm. are going to fail at some point. Either they just don't work or their side effect profile isn't, uh, isn't acceptable. Uh, but you know, we, we'll need, I don't know, a few, three, four, five to be successful. And when you've got 160 sticks in the fire, you're certainly going to have some successes. So uh, I think, obviously, speed is key. We want this right away. We want this as soon as possible because we know if we have implemented a vaccine, uh, it will at least start us along that pathway towards normalcy. But I think the key here is really getting it right. And even if there's a better vaccine that's two or three months behind, if it really does the job, I'm okay. I'm okay waiting two to three months to get the right one out rather than, promoting something that might not be as effective. And I think we really have to play the long game here. But having said that, listen, to get into a phase three clinical trial, you still have to meet a very uh, high level of rigor in the first, uh, in the preclinical studies and phase one and phase two clinical studies. And again, if the, if you pass that phase three clinical study and it shows it's, it's effective, the, the government regulatory bodies will have to look at all the data and say, you know what, we like this. Or, eh, you know what, not so good, and uh, we're going to pass and wait for something else. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a wait-and-see approach now for, for us just to see how the science evolves. But I think we're going to see – I'm not trying to be – I'm not trying to look at the world with rose-tinted glasses here. I, you know, when you look at the specs and the data that's available, there is a lot to be excited about. There is some really impressive progress on this front. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to be glass-half-empty about it, to be perfectly honest. We all, and we all – you mentioned the long game. That's 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 – Everything but the long game ends up being rather, rather disappointing. Uh, to be perfectly honest, um, oh, yeah. you note on uh, you note on Twitter, Doctor Isaac Bogut's joining us. By the way, uh, Greg Brady on the Bill Kelly Show. You note uh, something in Vancouver that I thought was significant on your Twitter account, um, but I'll, I'll let you explain why you think it's significant. But Vancouver. Uh, may put a city bylaw and they're going to allow people to drink alcohol in 22 public parks. And for everyone like me, probably like you, like a lot of our listeners that are not that that are just not in. Like I, I'm skittish about the bar idea. I'd love to go back post vaccine, but not now and not for a while. Um, this is rem- this is actually something that maybe other municipalities. Hello, Toronto, Hamilton, London. Maybe they should consider. Okay, this is brilliant, right? This just shows a good understanding of human behavior. And I, we can talk, file this under certain different categories. Some people might call it harm reduction or proactive, blah, blah, blah. And the point is, if you, the goal here is let's avoid lots of people in indoor settings crowded together for prolonged periods of time, okay, in any environment. But we know humans being humans, 
uh, if the bars are open. Even if you have the best laid plans, people are going to drink and and congregate together, even if they're supposed to sit at their table. We know that uh, people, and, and, and again, so is closing bars the right thing to do? Well, some people say yes, some people say no. But of course, if, if the bars are closed, we're going to start seeing people go to house parties. And now there's, you know, numerous examples of, of house parties with, you know, hundreds of people in there or, yeah. or even less. And, and we're seeing outbreaks at house parties at bars. So this just sets people up for success, right? Go outside. It's still summer. I know it's not feasible in, you know, I don't know, northern Saskatchewan in, in February, but uh, where it's 40 below, but, you know, at least for the time being, this is a very reasonable plan and it's safe. We know that there's very little transmission in outdoor environments and people can enjoy themselves in a beautiful setting. And, you know, obviously don't litter, spread Mm -hmm. apart, blah, 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 drink responsibly. But I think given the circumstances of a global pandemic, given the circumstances that we're trying to get keep community transmission as low as possible, I think this is just a really smart innovation. Yeah, collect collect some cans as well. You can uh, you can you can you know refill your white claw if uh, if you get there enough you of them uh, in a in a park area. <laughs> and and we like look at where we've looked at Europe and we've thought, boy, they do bicycles right in certain cities. They do outdoor cafes and patios in certain cities. Uh, and those of us that have been to Europe are like, yeah. And and we we're they're also not quite as draconian as we are in North America about drinking in public that this is where we should be in the open air because as you note in november december like take what you can get right now take every outdoor opportunity you can get because soon it's not going to exist and then we're right back to march and right back to early march where we feel like we're shut inside all day i'm i'm with you i'm with you and we know that it doesn't matter the environment like be it a work environment a home environment a bar a nightclub it doesn't matter you get a lot of people inside who aren't physically distant from each other for prolonged periods of time, you're going to get an outbreak. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It has happened. It will continue to happen. It happens everywhere in the world where that where those situations exist. And it, it doesn't matter what the cause or what the underlying driver is to get inside. That's just going to happen. And, of course, it's going to get colder in Canada. People are going to be inside uh, more and more for work, for play, for uh, you know a number of different reasons. And uh, it's not going to come to anyone's surprise if we see a spike in cases in the fall. Let's get the rates of transmission mm-hmm. as low as possible now. We can do everything we can to get this. It'll improve the probability of getting kids back to school in a safer manner as well if we have low rates. There's just a million reasons to have low rates of community transmission. And this is just one easy, small step that can do it with uh, allowing people to have alcohol in public parks. Dr. Isaac Bogut, our guest. So uh, we're what, about nine days removed from the federal government making the call about the Blue Jays not playing in Toronto. I want to ask you, because I, kn- I know you advise the NHLPA, I want to ask you about hockey in a sec, but the baseball plan, um, beyond being full of holes, they've already canceled Yankees-Phillies tonight because the Marlins team was in Philadelphia. It looks like half the players, at least half the players, have positive tests uh, for COVID-19. There's four more uh, this morning, uh, so that's 15 out of a 30-man expanded roster. Was the baseball plan ever, ever going to be able to, to pull off a 60-game season? This just I don't think sports can happen in North America without what the NHL is planning and, and maybe even what the NBA is planning, though we, ha- we haven't seen really any outbreaks in the NBA yet. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I, I still am not entirely sure, and we have to see how this pans out. On the one hand, let's just talk baseball for a second. Mm-hmm. There, there are, we have to divide our thinking into public safety, and player safety. 
from a player safety standpoint, yeah, you know, if you're traveling around Florida, Arizona, uh, California, Texas, other parts that are heavily impacted, it should come to no one's surprise that players are going to get infected. Like, I don't know what what we would expect. Like, if people are out and about in, in those areas, you're just going to have a chance you're going to get in touch with this virus and get infected. And then of course you can infect your team. So the baseball plan itself was not, I mean, I'm sure people have differing opinions on it. Mine is that it it wasn't really ideal given the circumstances. That's a player safety issue from a public safety issue. We have to distinguish between the two. If this was happening in Toronto and that team came into Toronto, remember they'd fly in on their private jet. They'd take their private transport to the hotel, play the game in the hotel that's attached right at the stadium, have minimal contact with others. Sure, they can infect themselves, but that's not a public safety issue. That's a player safety issue. As long as these players are inside their quarantine, and that is a quarantine, the quarantine is just a larger umbrella that includes the hotel attached to the field. As long as they're inside that quarantine, that's not a public safety issue. It's a player safety issue, but it's not a public safety issue. So I'm not saying we should have, could have, would have done this in Canada, although I don't think it was a major public safety issue. I'm saying that the plans to travel around and go from stadium to stadium put certainly it increases the likelihood that players can get infected, and this is exactly what we're seeing. There were, uh, just to, just come in right now, only six cases, about 100, uh, I just saw it, 109 cases today in the, 111 in Ontario, but only six in uh, Toronto. And obviously there's there's hockey tonight at uh, Scotiabank between the, the Leafs and the Habs. Uh, you've you've done you've given some advice. Uh, you've been an advisor for the NHLPA. Um, the seriousness of this, uh, Gary Bettman's reiterated. I'm sure coaches and GMs have reiterated. Never mind the bad publicity, but breaking the bubble and doing anything untoward. And you got to tell a lot of a lot of kids in their early 20s that who have a lot of disposable income. It's vital. It's just vital or it's not going to work. This is an eight nine week playoff tournament, and they have to make it work. And the first couple weeks will be critical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a couple points. One is that, look what happened. These guys are conspicuous, right? They're professional athletes in hockey frantic cities like Edmonton and Toronto. Like, do you think if an NHLer says, ah, I got to go out for a beer and and grabs a (laughs) beer on Yonge Street, like, this is going to be all over the media and all over social media. Like, it's kind of obvious if they leave. So I think that's a positive uh feature here and and of course it's not it doesn't just put the player at risk it puts the whole team at risk we saw this with major league soccer i'm not saying anyone purposely left the bubble i'm saying in major league soccer we saw what happens when a team gets infected and now of course we just mentioned with major league baseball but the a dallas soccer team and a nashville soccer team had to withdraw from the major league soccer tournament even though they were in a bubble type of environment because a significant number of players got the infection and uh, they just couldn't compete. They just had too many people that were out, so they had to withdraw. So, you know, if people don't act in the manner in which they're supposed to act, and they put themselves at risk, and they put their whole team at risk. And can you imagine, how do you live with yourself if you are the person responsible for infecting other players on your team if yeah. you decided to, to leave the bubble? I mean, obviously, look, some people might have to leave the bubble for medical reasons, for personal reasons, the birth of a child, you name it. Uh, and that's that's completely okay and there's protocols for how to leave the bubble how to get back into the bubble blah 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 but you know you uh, you, still, you know you got to do it the right way we hope uh, we hope it happens dr bogosh love your uh, opinion and analysis and uh, thanks for being an entertaining guest today i appreciate it have a great day
Got it. Dr. Isaac Bogut joining us, infectious disease physician and scientist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a tough business. It's a fun business. It takes a lot of time. You know, we're 11 years older, and just with the, the state of how the music industry is going, live music is kind of becoming more of a niche market. You know, there, there's a lot of variables that played into it, but uh, it just felt like it was a time. All right, so that is Lou Molinaro of This Ain't Hollywood uh, closing up shop after 11 years. If you're in Hamilton, you might have seen uh, the legendary teenage head there, uh, a reunited teenage head. You might have seen Jim Cuddy there, the Rayostatics, the Arkells, some massive names. Club shows are remarkable. The last one I went to that I had so much fun at was uh, Johnny Marr out of the Smiths, right? He comes and plays at the Velvet Underground. He can play bigger venues, but it was sort of more an album preview show. I think he only did them in New York and Toronto, and sometimes you got to know somebody who knows somebody, and I was lucky I did, uh, and that was like May, sweltering hot night, but that's not a drive-in concert, and these things are going to fall by the wayside. The The quote that w- just ripped me apart was Aaron Benjamin, president of the Canadian Live Music Association, it's a catastrophe. We're losing venues by the day. And whether it's Hamilton, London, call the office. I saw Radiohead, Catherine Wheel at call the office inexplicably. How does that happen? And our next guest, I'm sure, has seen uh, many a show in a uh, crowded, claustrophobic venue in the middle of the spring and summer where it gets a little sweaty. He's the host of the ongoing history of new music weekdays 6 to 7 on uh Chorus Station 102.1, The Edge. The inimitable Alan Cross uh, joins me now. Alan, thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, we're, you know, you've probably got numerous, numerous sweaty shoulder-to-shoulder club shows you could talk about where you saw a big band before they got big. I, I do, and it occurred to me on Sunday that I think I have now gone the longest <laughs> without seeing a live show uh, in in decades. I mean, we really haven't been able to do anything since, I guess, January, uh, really, maybe February. But it, it has been a very, I feel like I'm very weirded out by this whole thing, extremely weirded out. I think there was a there was a reunited um, the Chris Tate of the excellent Chalk Circle, who you'd know really well, played a show. And I think it was a benefit show in the, at the start of March. And I thought about going, and then I saw it was sold out, and then I'm like, Oh well, it's sold out because we're all sort of to get that a little bit of COVID stress early, and we're still doing stuff, but we're still not sure if we should. But I remember that being the case, and I'm thinking that's the last show I probably would have gone to. But you're right. Um, when we're talking four or five months, most of us who are live music freaks, um, that that's a rarity that we'd be we'd have to be incapacitated to go that long without gigs. Yeah, and it's it's not going to get back to normal for quite some time. There are some artists who are optimistic and have scheduled some tours and some shows for the fall. Uh, I don't think that's really going to happen, especially when you consider that many of these artists are coming up out of the United States, and that is just one big smoke and dumpster fire down there when it comes to the virus. Other artists have scheduled for next summer. Pearl Jam earlier this week announced that they were going to do something in Europe beginning in June of next year, Uh, a tour that was supposed to have Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and Weezer, at the Rogers Center, which we had been talking about for over a year, yeah. has been canceled, or at least postponed, until next year. Uh, Justin Bieber has rescheduled his tour until next year. But even then, you know, some experts are saying, no, nah, it's going to be 2022 before things start to get under control, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you need to get the virus under control. You need to bring the infection rate down. So you need some sort of effective treatment, or you need a vaccine. 
The other two things are liability. I mean, who is going to want to host a concert when there is a possibility of many, many people being sick in a super spreader episode? So you can, it's very hard to get COVID-19 insurance, to get pandemic insurance for your tour or for your venue. And finally, uh, there's the, the PTSD that's going to go along with this. We've all changed our habits. I mean, when I was out for my walk yesterday and I encountered somebody on the sidewalk, we both went off onto the opposite sides of the sidewalk on the grass just to avoid each other. That's what everybody is doing. So the new normal is avoiding people, avoiding close contact with people. Are you, how many people are going to be willing to go into a sweaty club where you're going to be up next against other people who are singing and yelling and sending droplets into the air and you know all the other stuff that goes along with it? Uh, it, it we're, we're, we're going to be really gun-shy about that. And I think I can add a fourth thing now that I think of it, mm-hmm. is, is the venues are going to have to change um, in order to accommodate health authorities and to assuage the fears of fans. So that's going to have, you know, maybe social distancing, maybe it's going to be a lot more hand sanitizers. How are you going to police crowding in places like bathrooms and smoking areas and service areas around the bar and, and all the rest of it? There's, there's, the more you think about it, the more you realize uh, how many challenges there are when it comes to getting uh, shows back on the road and you feel bad not only for the bands but for the venues for the bartenders for the serving staff for the promoters for the roadies for the sound equipment rental people everybody that's wrapped up in live music there's this unbelievable uh domino effect and, and you made me think of something i mentioned that uh johnny Marr show I, I i like looking around sometimes and seeing well is this an old crowd is this a younger crowd than i thought so he's 56, but I'm looking around going, I- I'm in my mid-40s. I'm one of the youngest people there because the Smiths had their heyday when I was like 12 or 13 and really connected with 20, 21-year-olds, a huge college band, as you'd well know. So I'm looking around, and you're like, you got 400 mostly 50-year-olds in a building with not great ventilation, uh, sweating like crazy, singing out loud. Of course, it's a super spreader event until we get a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, when you consider that the biggest draws in the concert tours these days are people in their 60s, 70s, and approaching 80s. I mean, you think Paul McCartney, you think Ringo Starr, you think the Rolling Stones, you think the Eagles. It just goes on and on. These artists who have had fantastic careers over many, many decades are now looking at the future and going, am I done? Can, can, can I last outlast this virus, or, or have I seen the end of my my performing career because I'm in a high risk group. I may have some comorbidities. Um, You know, have we seen the last of those superstar heritage legacy acts? We might have. And that's another thing that's got me weirded out. Do you imagine, you know, my my parents are 86 and 84. Yeah. And, you know, God, God forbid anything happens to them. But, you know, if you're at that age, this is how you might live out the rest of your life in, in lockdown and quarantine. And, and what a horribly depressing way to think about it. Well, and the vulnerability as well. Like, you mentioned it, and so many of these older acts were on, quote-unquote, 
retirement tours. Now, remember what um, the Who retired in night famously at Maple Leaf Gardens in 1982, and we're like, eh, we might see them again in several years, and we did actually three years later at Live Aid. But Elton John, Paul Simon, Ozzy—they were all planning these. This is it, no more. I mean, Rod Stewart's 75; he has not done a retirement tour yet. But you nailed it. That demographic is like. Do I need the money? Is it worth it to get out there and and do you know sixty American shows in eighty days and ride a bus all around all around the United States right now? Not likely. Yeah, and and the cold reality is that even if we didn't have a virus, we are on the way to a mass extinction in the next ten fifteen years, when our artists, these people that have been with us for all our lives and even longer, uh, will have reached the end of their lives. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's so disheartening, you know, and you see the, the, the venues closing, especially the small venues where artists have a chance to, you know, get their foot in the door. Uh, you know, is it going to take government funding? Is it going to take a vaccine? I, I don't know, but it is, it's dire. It really is dire. Well, Alan Cross, by the way, our guest uh, from The Edge 102.1, uh, I want to talk about the venues in a sec, but I think it'd be great for our audience. It occurred to me that nobody would be better than you to lay out the how it's changed, how the pendulum has swung. Artists make their money on the road. Sometimes the road would be a pain. You'd stage too big a tour. If you didn't have a corporate sponsor, you could uh, big bands could lose money if the tour was too extravagant, but they were selling albums like hotcakes. So gone, I think, are the days where there's a ton of bands, Alan, with, with platinum, uh, multi-platinum selling albums, um, but touring is where it's at. And these older acts are out there because they're ca- almost all of us own their albums already. There's not much they can produce that's new, and a lot of fans don't want to hear the new music, so they tour. And the the pendulum has swung so significantly to where that's where the that's where the money's being made. And now there's no way to make it. Yeah, it used to be if you had uh, a successful catalog of releases. Let's say you're the Beastie Boys, uh, U2, uh, the Eagles. You could depend on a large royalty check coming to your mailbox every six months or so. So you could live off your past glories like an annuity, like a retirement plan. And, you know, the Beastie Boys, for example, would sell two million copies of License to Ill every single year. That's, that's a pretty good paycheck for something that's, that's that old. However, uh, with people buying fewer and fewer records, those royalty checks got smaller and smaller and smaller. And if these people wanted to maintain a lifestyle or do some estate planning for their descendants, the only way that they could do that is to find additional or alternate revenue streams. And it so happens that the decline in sales of, of physical product coincided with the rise of these, these mega tours by these, these, uh, these, these heritage acts. Mm-hmm. And they were making tremendous amounts of money. I mean, you wouldn't get Fleetwood Mac out on stage for less than 1.5 million U.S. per night. <laughs> Yeah, you know when it, when we went back to uh, Desert Trip, that old cello, the, the Coachella for the old folks. Uh, you know, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, Roger Waters. Uh, you know, they were all getting uh, five million for their two performances. So that's a pretty good payday. If you remove that, not only does the artist suffer, but uh, everybody associated with that act. So, you know, they're, they're accountants, they're office managers. I mean, these, these are corporations. These are huge companies that employ a lot of people. 
And it's very, you know, do you, you have to make the same sort of decision. Am I going to, to hang on to my employees or am I going to have to cut costs to weather the storm? Now, that's the Superstar Acts. The other acts, the ones that are middle class and below, they never made any money selling music. They don't make a lot of money selling uh, streaming, unless you're Drake or you're Taylor Swift or a few others. You, you don't make any money that way. The only thing that puts food on the table is the revenue you get from playing live shows. And a lot of these artists depend on a steady string of live shows just to make ends meet. Now, Music Canada did a study of Canadian artists and found out that normally, at this point in the year, if this were any other year, a, a Canadian act would have 87 shows booked between now and the end of the year, 87. The average a number of shows these artists have booked this year is seven. And of the artists that they surveyed, 50% of them had no gigs booked. Amazing. Uh, uh, amazing. Like, uh, yeah, Polestar, the number Polestar put out, and this is in early April, Alan, estimated nearly $9 billion in industry losses due to COVID cancellations. And I can't think of another business because, honestly, we still need to eat. Now we can go and sit on a patio and have a beer. We still need clothes. Our kids are, you know, there's school. I can't think of another industry that has just, we know sports is reopened without fans, so there's still television rights money. I can't think of another industry, maybe movies, that's been as drastically affected. And and like you said, it's a real trickle effect right down to people making minimum wage. Yeah, you bring up the idea of, of licensing, uh, whether you get your music played as part of a uh, professional sports team's games or, you know, a, a new advertiser comes along and needs a new song for their for their commercial. Um, but a lot of artists would make money you know, licensing their music to television and movies and production shut down. <laughs> so, yeah. so they're not, they're not making money even, even that way. It's, 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 you know, and it's not just us, it's, it's everywhere on the planet. And we just have to hope that first of all, we, you know, I, I really think what we ought to do is just organize a road trip to the Peace Bridge where we all stand at the border and just scream <laughs> over the border, get it together, America! <laughs> it is holding us up. I know. There's yeah. going to be... Maybe maybe we'll get a lot more Canadian tours. We'll be like, oh, that band, Depeche Mode's not playing, uh, you know, Sudbury. Well, maybe they'll have to uh, because the States will be such a no-go and, and we'll be a safe haven to do a North American tour. There'll be 30 Canadian gigs and two American gigs instead of the opposite way around. Well, yeah, an American passport's almost useless right now because nobody will allow them in. They can't travel to Europe. And, also true. Also and, and true. There's there's also the quarantine issues. If you're coming from an international destination to here, it, it's it's listen. The the thing about this virus is that if we do everything right, nothing happens. Yeah. That's what we want. But you know, when nothing happens, how do you measure success? It's uh, it's a weird thing that we've never seen, and I hope we never see again. Yeah, uh, and and hopefully we're more than halfway through that. I think we'd sign up for gigs uh, next April, next May. Uh, if we can't get them December, January, we'll we'll sign the documents right now to take it next spring. Twenty twenty two is a lot longer to wait, and like you said, the the PTSD. There's people. There's just people that will never go back. Maybe of all ages. You can hear Alan weekdays six to seven on one hundred two point one The Edge with the ongoing history of new music. Always a pleasure. Always great. Thanks very much, Alan. You bet. Alan Cross uh, joining us. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.